It's February 17, 2023. This is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. Coming to you this week from RWCS in Maui, the Rheumatology Winter Clinical Symposia. It's a meeting run for like the last 16 years by uh, Artie Kavanaugh and George Martin. It's a great meeting, a stellar lineup, great talks. We're in day three right now, and uh, it ends up tomorrow in day four. Um, you want to tune in for this whole podcast, especially the end, because I'm going to give you the amazing sort of discourse that happened with a Ask Kush Anything case. The case being, can the high CRP be due to obesity and what do I do about it? Sounds fairly mundane, but my goodness, it resulted in a melee. But first, this week in the news, a report of anafrolimab being used in discoid lupus. That's right, discoid lupus. You know it's not approved for that. It's approved for systemic lupus erythematosus. Uh, anafrolimab, effective therapy, uh, uh, an alpha interferon inhibitor, um, works well at skin and joints. Two, two cases reported in JAMA Derm uh, where these patients had really severe disease, chronic scarring, refractory DLE, refractory to, yes, steroids, hydroxychloroquine, azathioprine, um, methotrexate, other immunosuppressives, cyclophosphamide, really, for DLE? But when, and, they, and go to the citation and look at the pictures. This is pretty severe disease. Well, both of them received anafrolimab in sort of standard doses. Um, the first case went from a SLEDI, measure of lupus activity, of 13 down to 2 in 24 weeks. But more importantly, a Classy, Classy A, which is a skin outcome measured used in lupus trials from 26 to 3 in 20 weeks. Case 2 uh, went from a Classy A from 24 to 5 only after one infusion. So you got to like this encouraging, albeit incredibly preliminary um, uh, and pilot sort of results with two cases. This is, looks like good enough data that I think the manufacturer should consider doing studies in DLE, which is a fairly large population with a minority having very refractory disease. While we're on the topic of lupus, a cohort study of 232 pediatric SLE patients, you know, kids with lupus, bad news. It's really, it's, a, it's m much more uniformly um, uh, dangerous. I mean, they have more activity, they have more organ damage, they need to be intensely treated. Anyway, these kids were followed for 12 months and the outcomes were, for, uh, almost half of them, 47% achieved an LL-DAS, a very low disease activity state, and that's encouraging. However, 40% incurred some kind of organ damage after about six years of follow-up. In their analysis, they showed that if you did get to LL-DAS within the first 12 months, you had a significantly reduced risk of developing organ damage. Uh, and the predictors of, um, of really bad outcomes really was, uh, you know, kidney involvement early from the start. So I think that, uh, you know, kids are hard to treat, but the data really speaks to, one, having some measure of what you're doing. You know, we really don't have that in practice, and most of, us, most of you are not doing bilags or sleet eyes or even classies. Uh, and we probably do need something like that where we can sort of, double check that we're going to have these more favorable outcomes. 
Uh, December uh, last month, we actually I missed an announcement that the FDA approved a baliparatide for the treatment of men with osteoporosis uh, who are at high, high risk of fracture. Again, we often don't talk about men with osteoporosis, and we seldom have drugs improved for this cohort. I think this is a great advance. A study of patients with vasculitis and looking at ultrasound. I know, you know, for PMR and, and for many of you who do ultrasound, you know, you have some really predictive uh, uh, measures. And, uh, and my experience is that uh, my ultrasound department is very good at doing ultrasound um, of temporal arteries and large vessels and getting reliable results. Not many places are. Uh, and not many rheumatologists are themselves experienced in, in doing this. In this particular study, they looked at patients um, who had either uh, high-risk atherosclerosis or large vessel GCA, about 40, 45 in each group. Uh, and they did uh, intimal media thickness uh, measures using ultrasound for the large vessels they could look at, including subclavian, axillary, um, carotids, etc. And basically, they showed a, an interesting measure that if you uh, had an intimal media thickness measure uh, uh, that was greater than one millimeter, um, it was more likely to be associated with uh, giant cell arteritis, more so than atherosclerotic disease. And I found that surprising. So in the GCA group, uh, 31 out of 44 had... Um, an IMT greater than one in the axillary arteries, or 30 out of 44 in the subclavian. But if you looked at the atherosclerotic group, it was like two out of 42 and three out of 42 for axillary and subclavian arteries, respectively. Again, a fairly easily obtained measure that could help you distinguish between those two conditions. And sometimes that distinction can be difficult if you don't have actual biopsy results. A retrospective study of 64 gout patients treated in an orthopedic surgery uh, department. They looked at the rates of perioperative and postoperative flares. They, a lot of what they showed was not that surprising, that those who had flares of gout perioperatively were those who had hyperuricemia, diabetes, a presence of TOFI, and taking diuretics. What I did find surprising in this was that if you were hyperuricemic at the time of surgery, or if you had TOFI at the time of surgery, you had a much higher rate of recurrent gout in the next year following surgery, 45% for those who met that criteria versus 11% for those that did not. This is almost a five-fold increase risk. So again, you need to be really well controlled, especially if you want to have surgery um, and you do have a background in gout. Uh, we reported this week on the Novesa trial. This is a trial of Zerotaxostat. This is an autotaxin inhibitor, yet another novel approach for patients with systemic sclerosis. This is a sort of small trial, but encouraging trial of 33 patients with early diffuse systemic sclerosis. Uh, and after 24 weeks, those who were treated with the autotaxin inhibitor had significant reduction in their modified Rodman skin scores. Minus nine, almost, yeah, minus nine versus uh, on the drug versus minus six. That was significant. Uh, again, we'll take whatever victories we can get in scleroderma. Uh, hopefully more uh, clinical trials are on the way with this. I like this analysis. I believe this was comes from a Korean database. Um, an analysis of, um, oh, not a database, but actually a meta-analysis done by a Korean group 
of patients who had a resolved hepatitis B infection, meaning that they were hepatitis B surface antigen negative, but they still retain uh, core antibody positivity, so hep B, C antibody positive. They looked at 26 studies and almost uh, 2,200 uh, patients in the study, and they, the pooled reactivation rate, you know, and the question is when you have patients like this, B surface antigen negative, core antibody positive, can you give them a biologic? Well, the pooled reactivation rate I've always quoted as being 1%, sometimes a little higher. Their uh, overall pooled data said it was 2% which means it's a very, uh, it's a good risk, I think, for people who actually need the, the biologic or the TNF inhibitor. But when they looked at the drugs that these folks took, the, there was a differential in risk. The risk was highest if patients were on rituximab and even a little bit higher if they were uh, B surface antibody positive, meaning they were not immunized, fully immunized by their past infection. So it was the 9% reactivation rate with rituximab. And then when you go to other ones, it's 6% with abatacept, JAK inhibitors 1%, IL-6 0, TNF 0. So again, you can treat these people with biologics. You probably might want to consider another choice um, uh, than rituximab in someone like this. You know, rituximab is notorious for viral reactivation and not, and not doing well with handling viral infections in general. So uh, I, I like the insights from this particular study. A study, uh, retrospective study from a Taiwan health insurance claims data analysis looked at the association between Hashimoto's thyroiditis and lupus. Well, you know, they both have ANA positivity. Is there confusion here? Is there a real association? Again, based on claims data, when they compared 15,000 patients with Hashimoto's thyroiditis and they looked at 31,000 controls, they found that the rate of lupus in the Hashimoto's cohort was almost three and a half um, fold higher. Uh, when they did further sensitivity analyses, the adjusted hazard ratio ranged from 4.3 to 5.1. So uh, again, autoimmune runs with autoimmune, does it not? Sort of surprising. I think the award of the week for best and most clinically helpful study comes from this particular uh, study, which uh, I think it was, uh, I don't know really where it was, but it, it's a new laboratory insights for ANA positive consults. This was a study of uh, ANA positive individuals, 160 in fact, compared to a number of different cohorts as to who's going to evolve into developing lupus. So, you know, this is basically the ANA consult uh, you, you, I assume you print the, you, you hit the button and it prints out the consult that you've uh, dictated or written a, a thousand times in the last year because the, out, the sort of story is the same, the uh, recommendations are the same. Do we need to follow these people? Um, and for the most part, the answer is no. I give my patients um, the instruction, you don't need to come back unless you develop these symptoms. Um, and, but I can tell you that in my own research in the past, working with Virginia Pasquale and doing microarrays on lupus patients, a lot of autoimmune patients, and controls like osteoarthritis and fibromyalgia. If you look at ANA-positive fibromyalgia or ANA-positive patients without anything, about 5% have the same signature of immune activation as you have with lupus, suggesting that maybe it'll happen in the future. So... One, I don't think that the titer of the ANA counts at all as far as the likelihood of further progression. 
Um, I think multiple autoantibodies certainly would count, but I don't do multi I don't do multiple testing because you got a positive ANA. Usually the question is why did you do the ANA in the first place? Well, anyway, in this study they compared that 160 ANA consults to uh, a bunch of um, ANA negative individuals, uh, healthy controls, uh, even uh, 70 patients with a systemic autoimmune disease. And they were looking at cytokine assessments, uh, specifically uh, uh, interferon alpha um, and some chemokines and galactin 9 and whatnot. And while the um, alpha interferon levels did correlate well with gene expression of alpha interferon and a few other measures, the, the, the factors that best predicted um, progression to lupus or a systemic autoimmune disease were serum CXCL10 and galactin 9 levels. What I like about this is, what? CXCL10, galactin 9? What the heck is that? You can measure it. These are ELISA assays. This is check the box, and, and, and now you have another measure. Do I think this is ready for prime time? No, I think we li would like to see a larger study on something like this, but I like the clinical utility and insight gained um, that would help the patient who's maybe worried about, will I develop lupus? My primary care told me I had lupus, et cetera. And I, so again, I think that gets the award of the week on the most interesting um, and useful of, of research. So. Um, I had to ask Kush anything this last week. Dr. Hatim sent me a, a, a message saying, um, I would like your opinion. And the question is, um, from your experience, how high can the CRP go with obesity alone? And that was the, so the question I got. Of course, as soon as he asked that question, I know that CRP goes up with obesity, but now I have a million questions before I answer it. And I did ask him how high the CRP was. And he said it was 19 milligrams per liter and then gave a little more history. And so the little more history that you get on this particular case is the patient is morbidly obese. The patient has fibromyalgia and hurts all over. The CRP has been, is 19 last. It's been elevated several times. Uh, I think she's 60, history of asthma, has taken steroids for asthma and says she feels better when she takes steroids for asthma. I don't know what dose. Uh, and there's, again, clearly fibromyalgia. The problem is the patient hurts everywhere, including the shoulders and the hips, but isn't that the confusion between PMR sites and fibromyalgia sites? The fact that she hurts, like, you know, over you know her um, foramen magnum, uh, you know obviously means that that particular site or other sites may not have any predictive value. Um, the patient does not have anemia, I believe, and had a recent negative chest CT. I don't know why that was done, but that's the all comforting. The question is: Is this due to just obesity? And his question is: How high have you seen it? Um, and, you know, what, basically what would make you uncomfortable and worry? He's concerned that could, the, that, you know, because the exam is hard because she's obese uh, and maybe fibromyalgia is misleading him, maybe the patient could have polymyalgia rheumatica. So my response back was doubling of the CRP is not uncommon, but I have seldom seen beyond three milligrams per de deciliter, which would be 30 um, milligrams per liter. Um, based on my years of experience. 
So I'm here at RWCS. I run a session called The Hot Seat. This is where I get nine world experts and I put them on stage with microphones and I give them cases. And they're generally everyday cases with interesting, sometimes difficult clinical questions. And I like this kind of case for this, meaning it's, it, it, this could go anywhere. And I thought I knew the answer to the question, is this due to obesity or what would you do? First question to the panel was, how high can it go with obesity? And generally the feeling was, you know, two to three fold. One person thought maybe tenfold, but that probably would be exceptional. Um, the next question is after we went round and round and round and round about, you know, what were the other labs? What was the SED rate? What was the this? So I just presupposed the SED rate's normal. The other labs are normal. There is no anemia and other markers of inflammation like thrombocytosis, hypoalbuminemia, and you're just dealing with a high CRP that's, let's just say it's 20 milligrams per liter. It could go as high as 15 to 30 for that matter, and it's not going to change the story and the challenge here. And the question is, are you going to do anything different in evaluation? Are you going to treat the patient as if she has fibromyalgia and nothing more, or are you gonna give steroids? Remember, the patient already took steroids and feels good with steroids. So here's some of the problems. One, if you give steroids, or for that matter, even an IL-6 inhibitor, you're gonna drop the CRP. That may have nothing to do with whether or not the patient has PMR or not, meaning, if she has that from obesity, you're going to drop the CRP. If it doesn't drop with a powerful drug like, you know, 20 milligrams of prednisone or, or higher or um, an IL-6 inhibitor, boy, you really need to worry about background malignancy, chronic infection, etc. right? So this has not happened, by the way. I'm just saying we're just sort of talking speculatively about what could happen here. Because the panel, 50% of the panel said, I would give her steroids. I'd give her 20 and, and ask her after a few days um, or two weeks how she feels. The problem with that, in my experience, is everybody feels great with steroids. The panel made by um, uh, uh, the, the, the opinion made by the panel was that if you get a response in three days, that's very much more of a PMR-like response. And that might help you more so than saying that she felt, yeah, I feel better after two weeks, which is more likely with everyone. I don't know if I want to hang my hat and, and commit an older person to steroids based on that. Again, a lot of people were bothered that there was no other evidence of inflammation in here that you could hang your hat on, that you could get more aggressive with therapy on. When we turned this to the audience, and the audience was almost 300 people, and we did a vote, guess what? They said the same thing as the panel. Half would use steroids. Half say, no, it's just obesity and elevated CRP. So the question is, how do I answer Dr. Hatim, who's asking me for my opinion? Well, he just asked me how high it would go. And I, as I said, it can go up to threefold higher. And in his lab, five is normal. So he has a high sensitivity CRP. That means it can go to 15 at least. I've seen higher than that. So in the range that he's talking here, 20, even 30 milligrams per, per liter, I could attribute that to um, obesity if it's A, repeated, right? So what's the literature show on this? There really isn't a good literature review to say how high it goes. 
you know, we know that this is coming from the liver. We know it's IL-6 driven. Um, the literature shows that if you look at a CRP greater than 10 being abnormal, 6.7% of the population will have an elevated CRP. Other studies using um, other assays say that normal weight individuals, it's 3% the CRP is elevated, but if you are overweight, 7%, if you're obese, it's 15% will have an elevated CRP. What drives this? It's lipids, generally. Hyperlipidemia, we know that weight is a factor independent of hyperlipidemia, and also diabetes and fasting blood sugars. It's more likely to happen in women, almost twice as likely in women than in men, where if you have a BMI greater than 30, you have almost a four to five-fold higher risk of having an elevated CRP. But again, I think the higher the CRP, the more you have to worry about another disease, infection, malignancy. I worry less about PMR because the patient has fibromyalgia and hurts all the time. I've been told by the PMR mavens, oh my, we see it all the time. People with, with PMR who are undertreated and called fibromyalgia. Let's just do some of the math on this, right? Fibromyalgia affects about 7% of the population, patients with widespread pain, right? So, and then what's the incidence of PMR in the United States in the general population? It's like 800,000. So, you know, number-wise, you know, it's like 8 million versus 800,000, 10 times more likely at least that this problem from an epidemiologic standpoint is gonna be due to fibromyalgia than PMR, you need an, another reason to treat this patient as if it's PMR more than the CRP. That would be my guidance to Dr. Hatim. I, you know what? Send me your comments. Um, and when you do, I'm just going to say half of you are wrong. I just don't know which half. That's it for this week. Be sure to register for Room Now Live, the next great meeting in rheumatology, March 18 and 19 in Dallas. We'll see you there or we'll see you online. Have a good week.